Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. If you grew up watching Disney movies like I did, you may never have considered how dark some of the source material many of these classic animated films really are. Take Snow White, for example. There's a point in the movie where the jealous queen actually orders the huntsman to kill Snow White, demanding not only the girl's murder, but instructing the man to bring back Snow White's heart in a jewel box as evidence that he did the deed. What may be more surprising is that this is actually a sanitized version of the original 19th century version, published by a couple of German brothers named Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. In their earliest telling of the story, the Queen actually demands Snow White's lungs and liver so that she can eat them. Something that's often overlooked today is that when the Brothers Grimm published their first edition of Nursery and Household Tales in two volumes in 1812 and 1815, Those stories were originally aimed at adults, not children. It was only after sales of the book tanked that they decided to water down the more graphic details of their stories and market the collections once again to a younger audience. Many of the stories they published were actually variations of early French fairy tales. One such well-known tale the Brothers Grimm updated was that of Bluebeard, the story of a wealthy man with a habit of murdering his wives, The earliest known published version of this story was written by a French author named Charles Perrault in 1697. Although we can find numerous variations on this story throughout history, the basic version goes like this. Bluebeard was a wealthy nobleman who married several women, each of whom mysteriously vanished one by one. So it should come as no shock that after a certain point, most of the local women weren't all too keen on becoming the next Mrs. Bluebeard. The nobleman then sought out one of his neighbors and asked to marry one of the man's daughters. The young women were, of course, terrified. But to calm their fears, Bluebeard threw a lavish banquet in their honor, during which Bluebeard chose his neighbor's youngest daughter to be his new bride. He married the young woman against her wishes, then took her back to live with him in his luxurious country chateau. Soon after, he told her he must leave the estate for a few days while he took care of business out of town. He handed her the keys and gave her the run of the estate, save for one exception. He pointed out a particular door leading to an underground chamber, telling her that room was off-limits. He made her promise she would never open it. She agreed, but, of course, as soon as Bluebeard left, the young woman's curiosity got the best of her, and she unlocked the forbidden door. There, inside the sealed chamber, she found the room drenched in blood, 
and the bodies of Bluebeard's former wives hanging from hooks on the walls. Horrified, the young woman relocked the door, hoping to hide the fact she had seen what was inside. But the next day, Bluebeard returned and figured out immediately what she had done. He was prepared to kill her right then and there and add her body to his collection. But his bride managed to stall him by asking him to join her while she said her prayers. This provided just enough time for the young woman's brothers to show up and save the day by slaying Bluebeard. This also allowed the now widow to inherit the man's fortune. She eventually found true love with another much kinder man, and the two of them lived happily ever after. Variations on this story have been around for centuries. Some historians have speculated that it was inspired by the real-life child killer and nobleman, Gilles de Ray, who fought alongside Joan of Arc. The story of Gilles de Ray is certainly worth its own episode, so I won't dive into the details here. But just let it be said, although it's been claimed that anywhere from 50 to 100 bodies were found inside the man's castle, this doesn't seem to be a very close match to the story of Bluebeard since all the man's alleged victims were children, not grown women. A more likely source for the story is that of Connemar the Accursed, who ruled Brittany during the mid-6th century. According to legend, Connemar married a woman named Trophine, who was the daughter of a wealthy count. Some versions of the story claim that Trophine was visited by the ghosts of Connemar's three previous wives, all of whom mysteriously disappeared. The ghosts revealed to her that Connemar murdered them all, which naturally didn't exactly endear her to the idea of marrying him. Even still, Trophine eventually gave in and agreed to marry Connemar after he threatened to send his army to slaughter Trophine's entire family. But before Trophine agreed to the marriage, she had one stipulation, that she'd be allowed to return to her father if he was ever cruel to her. At first, the marriage seemed to be going well until one day Trophine discovered a secret room in Connemar's castle containing the corpses of his previous wives. It was then that the spirits once again appeared before her, warning that if she ever became pregnant, Connemar would kill her. Since he had learned of a prophecy that said his own son would one day grow up and kill him. But Trophine knew she was already pregnant by that point, leaving her no choice but to flee the castle. She managed to hide away long enough to give birth to a son, Tremur. Some versions claim that Connemar managed to track Trophine down and behead her although an even more fanciful version claimed that St. Gilda somehow managed to magically reattach her head and bring her back to life. After which, according to the prophecy, Tremur grew up and went on to slay his father. Like a lot of such stories from history, it can be difficult to tell just how much to believe. I think we can pretty much discount the part where Trophine gets her head reattached and comes back to life. Beyond that, we do know that Trophine was a real Breton saint and that Connemar was an actual ruler. In reality, he was a former count who became king by murdering his predecessor and marrying the widow. Trophine was his second wife, and he went on to murder her and his son Tremur. But this is where the legend really veers off from reality, because it turns out Connemar wasn't killed by his own son. Instead, he died in battle after being excommunicated from the Christian church in Brittany and forced to fight against the previous king's son who overthrew him. In any case, you can see from Connemar's story where the seeds of the story of Bluebeard came from. It's possible to look at stories like Bluebeard as simple cautionary tales warning young women to choose their husbands wisely and make good matches. 
It can also be seen as a pretty sexist warning for women to obey their husbands so that they might not be mistreated. At its most basic level, the legend of Bluebeard can also be seen as a blatant display of the sort of patriarchal standards women throughout history were expected to conform to. Stories are often like that. A crazy quilt of facts and conjecture woven together to create a compelling narrative. The thing is, though, even though the origins of the tale of Bluebeard can be a little slippery to determine, it is true that the term Bluebeard would become synonymous afterwards in criminology for a particular type of serial killer who liked to marry and murder a succession of women. In this episode, I'd like to tell you about two such killers, two men who couldn't be more different. Yet they still had a couple things in common. Both of them killed their lovers, and both of them came to be known as the press as the Bluebeards of their era. I'm Nate Hale, and for the life of me, one thing that I've never understood is how a beard is supposed to grow in blue in the first place. And this is The Conspirators. One of the most notorious serial killers of the 20th century was a man named Henri Landru. Like the fictional killer in the story, Landru was quite a ladies' man, which is all the more surprising considering his appearance. He was short and bald with what one person described as ferret eyes. Like the killer from the story, Landru also had some rather striking facial hair. A thick, spiky beard shaped like a blade. For some reason, more than 280 women found him irresistible. Of those, at least 10 of them died by his hand. More than 70 others were simply never heard from again. It's for this reason that Henri Landru would go on to become known as the Bluebeard of Paris. Henri Landru was born in April 1869 to devoutly religious parents. By all accounts, there were no early signs of any sort of psychopathic behavior during his childhood. He excelled in Catholic school and was a literal choir boy. He graduated when he was 16 and went on to apprentice for several architects, all of whom gave him stellar recommendations upon leaving their employ. He was conscripted into the army where he quickly rose through the ranks to becoming a sergeant. During this time, he seduced and impregnated a 16-year-old girl, Marie-Catherine Remy, who was sometimes described as a neighbor, although some accounts claim she was actually his cousin. In either case, the young girl gave birth to a daughter in June of 1891, Two years later, Landrew married her, thereby legitimizing the birth. It was during the years that followed that Landrew's criminal behavior began to emerge. He bounced around through a number of legitimate business enterprises, from clerk to toy maker to building bicycles to becoming a used furniture dealer. At the same time, he also began committing a series of petty frauds that landed him in prison seven times between 1901 and 1914. It was after World War I broke out that Landrew saw an even bigger opportunity for himself. With nearly 9 million young men heading off to fight, nearly half of whom were destined never to return, Landrew realized this left behind a huge number of lonely, unattached women, ripe for the pickings. While working as a furniture salesman a few years earlier, Landrew had gotten in some hot water when he began wooing some of the poor, middle-aged women who came to him desperate to sell their possessions. He sweet-talked them into allowing him to invest their meager pensions, which he promptly stole. By the time war broke out, Landrew began stepping up scams like these by placing a matrimonial ad in the newspapers that read, 
widower with two children, age 43, possessing comfortable income, affectionate, serious, and moving in good society, desires to meet widow of similar status with a view to matrimony. One of the first women who answered this ad was Jeanne Couchet. Her husband died fighting the Germans, leaving behind her and her 16-year-old son Andre. By that point, Landrieu had set himself up in a small villa in the Paris suburb of Chantilly. He told Jean Couchet his name was Raymond Diard, and he went on to woo her by buying her gifts and sending flowery love letters that spoke about how much he couldn't bear to be without her. Eventually, Madame Couchet moved into Landrieu's villa with her son with the expectation they would soon marry. But before the wedding could take place, Landrieu broke some bad news to her. It seems he could no longer afford to marry her after he foolishly invested half his fortune in a cinema company that went bust. So Madame Couchet offered to loan him the money from her own considerable fortune. Within weeks, that amount grew and grew until Landrieu had drained her bank account dry. Landrieu's scheme very nearly fell apart early on. There came a point where Madame Couchet and the man she knew as Raymond Diard had a falling out. She asked her brother-in-law and some other family members to accompany her to Diard's villa to help mend things between them. Landrieu wasn't in when the group arrived at the villa, so Couchet's brother-in-law began nosing around and discovered a chest full of love letters to other women. The brother-in-law tried to convince her that her lover was a complete fraud, but Madame Couchet would hear none of it. In retrospect, she really should have heeded his warnings. It was sometime around January 1915 that Madame Couchet and her son vanished. We don't know exactly how the two of them died. Some historians speculate that Landrieu drugged them before strangling or suffocating them. What is widely believed, though, is afterwards, Landrieu dismembered the corpses and tossed the parts into an oven he'd had specially built for that purpose. Later on, Landrieu gave his wife, Marie, Jean Couchet's watch as a gift. Over the next four years, Landrieu continued his con using a series of phony names. It's believed Landrieu's next victim was a woman named Therese Laborde-Line. She was the widow of a wealthy hotelier who had inherited his fortune. She began telling friends she'd met a charming engineer from Brazil whom she'd agreed to marry. But, since the man was an immigrant from Brazil, there was all sorts of red tape involved getting in the way of the two of them marrying. So instead, they simply moved in together. Laborde Line was last seen in July 1915. Afterwards, a man later identified by the woman's neighbors as Landrew arrived at her home and gathered up her remaining belongings. Over the years that followed, Landrieu's crimes followed the same pattern. About a month after Laborde Line was last seen, a 51-year-old widow named Marie-Angelique Guillon arrived at Landrieu's villa and promptly vanished. One mysterious disappearance linked to Landrieu that didn't quite fit his usual pattern was that of 19-year-old André Babelet, who vanished in 1917 while en route to visiting her mother. No one knows precisely why Landrieu may have done away with her since the girl didn't have any money of her own. What is known is that after Babelet's disappearance, Landrieu moved to a new villa in Gambe, where he had a large cast-iron oven installed. He spent nearly a year wooing the heart of a wealthy widow named Celestine Buisson, before she finally agreed to leave her family and loved ones behind and move in with him. She was last seen around April 1917. In September of that year, yet another widow moved in with him and was never seen again. Landrieu's neighbors reported seeing and smelling noxious black smoke rising from his villa right around that same time. In total, Henri Landrieu is believed to have murdered at least 10 women, as well as the 16-year-old son of Jean Couchet, 
although that number could be considerably higher. By the time Landrew was finally caught, it's known that he had been in correspondence with at least 283 women, and of those, police were never able to determine the whereabouts of 72 of them. This doesn't necessarily mean that Landrew murdered them all, but it does leave open some terrifying possibilities. It was actually the younger sibling of one of his victims that was instrumental in bringing Henri Landrew to justice. Marie Lacoste was Celestine Buisson's half-sister, and she never liked Landrew from the minute she laid eyes on him. For the next two years, Lacoste implored her naive sister that the man was an obvious swindler out to steal her money. But Celestine refused to listen, right up until the fall of 1917 when Landrew finally convinced the woman to return with him to his villa in Gambe, then was never seen again. After that, Landrew quickly realized Lacoste was suspicious of him. He tried to cover his tracks by sending her two letters purportedly signed by Celestine, but Marie instantly realized these two letters were forgeries. It wasn't long after that when Landrew began appearing at Marie's place of employment trying to convince her to accompany her back to Celestine's apartment in Paris. But Marie believed this was a ruse for Landrew to get her alone with him, and refused to accompany him anywhere. For nearly a year, Marie wasn't sure how to proceed. She no longer heard from her sister, but at the same time she couldn't swear with absolute certainty that Celestine was dead. Then in December 1918, Marie received a letter informing her that Celestine's son had been blinded in the war. What was most disturbing, though, was the young man's exasperation after he had written to his mother on several occasions asking for financial help. Only none of those letters were ever answered. Marie went on to Celestine's old apartment and learned from the concierge the woman hadn't been seen since at least the summer of 1917. This convinced her once and for all that her sister was dead, and that Henri Landrieu must be her killer. She compiled a dossier of everything she knew about Landrieu, including his physical appearance, the location of his home in Gambe, and the forged letters she'd received and took it all to the police. At the Paris police station, an officer informed her that it wasn't his problem, and she should probably take her concerns to the police in Gambe. This infuriated Marie so she wrote an angry letter to the mayor of Gambe demanding he do something about the potential murderer in his midst. The mayor denied having any knowledge of Marie's sister Celestine, but he did admit that he had received a similar inquiry from another woman named Victorine Halat, who was the younger sister of Landrieu's sixth known victim, Anna Colombe, although she had identified the man living in Landrieu's villa under a different name. A single woman looking for her lost sister was one thing, but now there were two of them. Both women compared notes and realized how eerily similar their stories were. They took what they knew to the prosecutor's office in Gambe. Their complaints, along with the dossier of evidence they compiled, made their way eventually to Inspector Jules Baline of the Paris Police. Baline interviewed the two women, then took all the evidence they'd presented him, and immediately claimed full credit for Landrieu's arrest. In fact, police were only able to locate and arrest Landrieu after one of Marie's friends spotted the man at a Paris shop when he was out and about with one of his mistresses and immediately phoned Marie. Landrieu proved to be a cagey suspect. He vehemently denied murdering anyone and in fact barely even acknowledged he even knew most of the missing women beyond a passing acquaintance. But in the weeks following his arrest, police were able to gather a small mountain of evidence that Landrieu had stolen the wealth and possessions of at least 10 missing women. In fact, at the time of his arrest, he was still in possession of a number of items that were identified as belonging to several of those women. What the police were lacking was direct evidence of murder, especially any bodies. 
On April 29th, 1919, inspectors discovered tiny fragments of charred human bone debris beneath a pile of leaves in Landry's back garden at his village at Gambe. But even this direct evidence of human remains on the man's property proved problematic since Dr. Charles Paul, the director of the Paris Police Laboratory, was only able to determine the bits of skeleton had probably come from at least three people. But he was unable to determine if any of these remains belonged to any of the missing victims. A witness also came forward later on claiming to have seen Landrew dumping a heavy package in a pond near Gambe sometime around late spring or early summer 1916. It was also revealed that Landrew may have enlisted his wife and four children in some of his crimes, although whether they were aware of the murders is a little more difficult to determine. A witness also came forward later on claiming to have seen Landrew dumping a heavy package in a pond near Gambe sometime around late spring or early summer 1916. It was also revealed that Landrew may have enlisted his wife and four children in some of his crimes, although whether they were aware of the murders is a little more difficult to determine. His youngest son Charles admitted to helping Landrew clear out five of the missing women's apartments between 1914 to 1919. Charles also admitted to helping his father with some unspecified gardening work, as he described it, right around the time Jean and André Couchet disappeared. Landrieu's eldest son, Maurice, was arrested for swindling and thefts in 1915 and was subsequently court-martialed from the army. Among the items discovered in Maurice's possession at the time of his arrest were several pieces of jewelry belonging to Jean Couchet, although Maurice denied having any knowledge of where the jewelry had come from. Following his release from a military prison in January 1917, Maurice helped provide a cover story to explain the disappearance of the sixth missing woman, Anna Colomb. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. It's known that Landrieu's wife, Marie Catherine, forged at least one of the missing women's signatures, allowing him to gain access to her bank accounts. Marie Catherine broke down during a police interrogation and admitted her guilt, claiming her only real crime was loving her husband too much. Police were never able to conclusively tie Landrieu's two daughters to any of his crimes, although they suspected they knew more than they let on. In December 1919, the investigating magistrate ordered the arrest of Landrieu's wife, Mary Catherine, and his son, Maurice. They would eventually be released from custody because he ultimately decided a jury would have too difficult a time being convinced of their guilt. In many ways, the prosecutor almost sabotaged his own case. He himself presented evidence that showed Jean Couchet was almost destitute at the time of her disappearance, and that Landrieu had been financially supporting her at that point. He also presented the testimony of three psychiatrists who gave conflicting testimonies that Landrieu was both a deranged lunatic as well as a man who was completely in control of his faculties and knew precisely what he was doing. 
Landrew himself publicly challenged the prosecution that if he was the multiple murderer and monster they all claimed he was, then where were the bodies? All they had were a few bone fragments that Landrew's attorney tried suggesting may have been planted by police in order to frame his client. Much more problematic for the defense's case was a simple and rather obvious fact that in each of the 11 murders Landrew was accused of, the victims were never seen again. At one point during the trial, the defense tried putting forth the rather surprising claim that rather than being a murderer, Landrew was a pimp and that he had sold the women into the, quote, white slave trade. The jury's verdict was not unanimous, but it was still enough to ensure a conviction. On November 30th, 1921, a majority of nine jurors found Landrew guilty of all 11 murders he was accused of. The entire 12-person jury also unanimously convicted Landrew of all counts of theft and fraud. Landrew's attorney tried one last-ditch effort to get his client to avoid execution. He persuaded all 12 members of the jury to sign a letter of clemency, which would have allowed Landrew to be sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor rather than the guillotine. But Landrew refused to sign it, insisting his innocence right up until the moment they laid his head on the chopping block. Henri Landrieu was executed just before dawn on February 22, 1922. His body was originally buried in a marked grave before being disinterred five years later when his family declined to renew the lease on the burial site. I say his body because not all of him made it into the grave. It turns out that Landrieu's severed head was preserved and kept separate from the rest of the body. You can see it for yourself if you have a chance to visit the Museum of Death in Hollywood, California. Just a few years later, another killer would become known in the press with the title of Bluebeard. After it was discovered the number of girlfriends and others he may have murdered. But this man couldn't be more different from Henri Landrieu. Whereas Landrieu was known for being suave and collected, the next killer I'd like to tell you about was a rough-and-tumble, larger-than-life character. He was a bootlegger and a gambler, as well as the son of the richest family in tiny Elmendorf, Texas. Legend has that he also fancied himself a ladies' man of sorts, who had his own way with a number of waitresses at the bar he owned. But after they got pregnant or began to cause him trouble, he got rid of them. And some say he even fed them to his pet alligators. Let me introduce you to Joe Ball, a.k.a. the Bluebeard of Texas, the Butcher of Elmendorf, or simply, the Alligator Man. The problem with Joe Ball's story is so much of it has been so inflated by subsequent tellings in true crime magazines, it can be difficult to know how much to believe. Toby Hooper, the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even loosely based his second film, Eaten Alive, on the story of Joe Ball. By the time the details of his crimes began to emerge, it's believed he murdered at least five women, although some reports have put that number as high as 20 or 25 people. You can find the tiny town of Elmendorf just outside the San Antonio city limits. It's one of those blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of towns surrounded by scrub fields and mobile home parks. The current population stands around 1,500 or so. In 2004, the town gained some internet fame after a strange hairless canine creature that some people claimed was the mythical Chupacabra was killed there. Various opinions as to the animal's true origins have ranged from a Mexican hairless dog to a wolf-coyote crossbreed with the mange. Joe Ball's father, Frank X. Ball, helped build the town, which had been established by Henry Elmendorf, who went on to become the mayor of San Antonio back in 1885. This was cotton country, and Frank Ball made a fortune setting up the town's first cotton gin. 
He also opened the town's first general store where you could buy everything from shoes to groceries to caskets. He also made a fortune in real estate, buying and selling farms when the Depression hit and land prices hit rock bottom. His second child, Joe, didn't exactly follow in his father's footsteps, although he too had an eye for seizing opportunity where he saw it. Joe took Prohibition as his big break and started a lucrative bootlegging operation. He got his start driving around town selling people homemade whiskey out of a 50-gallon barrel. After Prohibition, Ball opened a bar he called the Sociable Inn. In the back of the bar were two bedrooms, while in the front of the establishment he had the bar itself, a player piano, and some card tables set up. Out back, he'd host cockfights and even put in a concrete swimming pool, which he stocked with five fully grown alligators. To amuse his rough-and-tumble customers, Joe liked to gather stray cats, dogs, possums, or any other small animal he could catch, then toss them into the alligator pit to watch them get eaten before a cheering crowd. Joe hired a large number of waitresses and so-called dance hall girls, many of whom seemed to disappear at an alarming rate. One of these women was Minnie Gotthardt, who some true crime historians describe as being an altogether bossy and obnoxious person to be around. But Joe still fell for her, and even allowed her to share bar running duties with her for a few years. But then Minnie was replaced in Joe's love life by a pretty newcomer named Dolores Buddy Goodwin, who remained Joe's main squeeze even after he got drunk and smashed a beer bottle in her face, badly scarring her for life. After Dolores, next came the latest in Joe's string of girlfriends, a dark-haired beauty named Hazel Shatsy Brown. Right after Shatsy appeared on the scene, Minnie abruptly vanished. Customers who inquired where she'd gone were told by Joe she'd gotten pregnant by a black man and had fled town to have the baby in secret. With Minnie suddenly out of the picture in September, Joe married Dolores and revealed to her his own secret. He told her he had taken Minnie to the beach and murdered her. Dolores later told Shatsy about Minnie's murder. Then in January 1938, Dolores' left arm was cut off. Although some stories claim she'd gotten too close to the alligator pit and one of them had bitten her arm off, it seems she actually lost it in a car wreck. Then in April, Dolores disappeared too, soon followed by Shatsy, who vanished without a trace as well. On Friday, September 23, 1938, an elderly Mexican laborer known only as Manuel went to Bexar County Deputy Sheriff John Gray and told him a disturbing story. Manuel said he occasionally did odd jobs for Joe's sister when he came across a strange 55-gallon iron barrel that Joe had stowed on the sister's farm. Manuel overheard Joe's sister telling her brother that the barrel stunk to high heaven and that flies were swarming all around it, and she wanted it off her property immediately. Joe promised to come pick up the barrel and take it away the following morning. Manuel insisted the sheriff needed to come look at it because he said he knew for a fact it contained a human body. But by the time sheriff's deputies arrived on the farm, Joe had already come and hauled the barrel away. Joe's sister confirmed to them the barrel was real, and it did smell like something rotten was inside, but she just assumed it was rancid meat he'd collected to feed his gators. When the deputies headed to the sociable inn to question Joe about the barrel, they found him sitting quietly at a table with a young man named Clifton Wheeler, who occasionally did odd jobs for Joe. The deputies told Joe the rumors they'd been hearing about his mysterious barrel and said they were there to take him in for questioning. Joe said he'd be happy to come with them, but first he needed to empty the cash register and close the place up for the day. Joe went beyond the bar and opened the register. That's when he whipped out a forty-five caliber automatic pistol. Both deputies grabbed for their guns and told him to drop it, but before they could get off a shot, Joe turned the pistol on himself and pulled the trigger. 
He died of a single gunshot straight through his chest. Reporters for the local newspapers would later describe Joe's suicide as a confession to his crimes, although what those crimes actually were took a little more time to figure out. Police took Clifton Wheeler to San Antonio for questioning, and he admitted what everyone suspected all along, that the mysterious barrel actually did contain a human corpse, that of Hazel Shatsy Brown, who Joe had shot and killed after she told him she was leaving him for another man. A few days after Joe murdered Shatsy, Wheeler was sent to retrieve the barrel from Joe's sister's house and drive to a bluff overlooking the San Antonio River. While Wheeler looked on... Joe dismembered the body with a meat saw he'd taken from his bar's kitchen. Then he chopped Shatsy's head off with an axe. The two men buried the torso and severed limbs in a shallow grave. Then they drove about 25 miles away and burned the head in a bonfire. That night, Wheeler led a group of deputies out to the burial site where they dug up the decomposed limbs and torso. They were also able to retrieve a portion of Shatsy's jawbone and a few of her teeth from the charred remnants of the bonfire which allowed positive identification through dental records. Police continued to question Wheeler about Joe's motives for killing Hazel Brown. Jealousy may have been a part of it, but Wheeler told police he thought it was because Shatsy knew too much about Minnie's murder. Wheeler then went on to admit how 18 months earlier, he had been invited along by Joe to go with him and Minnie on a picnic at a secluded Gulfside beach. For a while, it seemed everyone was having a good time laughing and tossing bits of sandwiches to the gulls, when suddenly Joe took out his forty-five and shot Minnie in the head. After that, Joe turned to the stunned Wheeler and told him to bury her body in the sand so they could go. Wheeler would eventually receive a two-year sentence as an accessory to murder. In exchange for his relatively light sentence, he agreed to take police to the location where he'd buried Minnie's body. He led them to the beach, but the search initially proved fruitless after the shifting sands had changed the landscape too dramatically to locate the body. After two days of searching, they gave up. Then three weeks later, they brought in a steam shovel and dug up a huge section of sand before they finally disinterred what was left of Minnie Gotthardt's decomposed remains. By that point, Joe's story had become hot news. Reporters swarmed the tiny town looking for any scoops they could get on the so-called Bluebeard of Texas. Police discovered a packet of letters as well as a scrapbook with photos of dozens of women among Joe's possessions, which only added to further speculation. Chief Deputy J.W. Davis publicly admitted he thought Joe Ball might be connected to as many as a dozen murders. The San Antonio Papers reported on more than a dozen of Joe's barmaids who had gone missing. Although initially most people suspected Joe had murdered his wife Dolores along with all the others, it turned out that she was alive and well and living in San Diego. She got arrested for public drunkenness and police caught up to her while she was serving a 15-day sentence in the local jail. Dolores told them that Joe had confessed to her about Minnie's murders, but she still refused to believe he was a complete monster the way the newspapers were saying he was. She did admit, though, that Joe had affairs with a lot of women and had a habit of acting fishy whenever one of them went missing. We'll probably never know exactly how many women Joe Ball murdered, nor what he did with all the remains. There is, of course, the one prevailing theory, that he dismembered the corpses of his victims and fed the parts to his pet alligators. This is the story that has made Joe Ball infamous in true crime lore. But whether there's any truth to that salacious story is a little harder to determine. On October 4, 1938, an Elmendor deputy constable named S.C. Sonny Kane told the press that he'd been approached by an unidentified man who claimed to have personally seen Joe six years earlier dragging the body of a woman into the alligator pit. 
According to Deputy Kane, Joe threatened the man at gunpoint to keep his mouth shut if he knew what was good for him. This, of course, became the biggest headline throughout the Southwest and eventually even became the cover story in a number of the pulpy true crime magazines from the era. The thing is, though, there's no way of ascertaining if the story is true at all. All we have is a second-hand account by one constable that was allegedly told to him by an unnamed individual. Joe's sister actually sued True Detective magazine several times over their often-repeated version of Joe's story. But despite a lack of proof for the tale, the legend of Joe Ball and his man-eating alligators never went away. The gators were eventually given to the San Antonio Zoo. Stories about Alligator Joe kept getting repeated over and over again with some glaring factual errors. Some stories you can find on the internet or in some of the true crime encyclopedias say Joe Ball shot himself in the head, and that when they dredged the bottom of the alligator pit, they found bits of human flesh. Neither of these things are true. In fact, although much has been made about the number of barmaids who went missing from Joe's tavern, it's also true many of them were later located or later on alive and well and living in the San Antonio area. Officially, we can't even really call Joe Ball a serial killer since he's only known to have murdered two women for certain. To earn the official title of serial killer, you need to have killed at least three. Joe's wife, Dolores, repeatedly tried telling reporters she didn't believe he fed any women to his alligators. She also said he wasn't the horrible monster the tabloids made him out to be. This despite his admission to her about how he'd murdered Minnie in cold blood. The truth is, we can only conclusively tie those two murders to Joe Ball. But, despite a lack of evidence, the legend of Joe Ball and his man-eating alligators continues. Because if there's any lesson to be learned here, it's this. You never, ever let the truth get in the way of a good story. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a few new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to T, Alyssa, and Evan for signing up and helping support the show. I really appreciate it. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another reminder that we've also just recently launched our brand new merch store, where we have a bunch of great designs for Conspirators t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find us on many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. You can also find us all over social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to reach out and let us know how we're doing. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.